Grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Exile Cast for Monday, November the 29th, in the year of our Lord 2021. Well, first of all, I just want to apologize that we didn't have a live stream up for you this week. We just couldn't make that happen on Sunday, and that's why we're working hard to get this out to you today, because I do think that we have an important message here. It's the first of an actual honest-to-God preaching series I'm doing, and I'm not a preacher that, that does uh, preaching ser- series at all, really. Um, but every once in a while, during Advent especially, um, I put a four-week preaching series together. So when they do come around, I, I try to put a lot of things thought and prayer into them and this one is called advent and artistry where we will be taking a look at various works of visual art throughout advent Uh, so you'll want to stay tuned for that a little later on secondly i i want to mention that today is the sort of unofficial feast day of a hero of mine a lady named Dorothy Day Dorothy Day was someone who came of age during the height of the Great Depression in New York New York City she was an activist a pacifist an anarchist and most of all, a devoutly Catholic woman who, along with her friend Peter Moran, started something called the Catholic Worker Movement. If you are unfamiliar with the Catholic Worker, then I invite you to just go ahead and throw that in your Google machine or uh, check out some YouTube videos about it. There's plenty up there. It's this amazing ministry that's been around for, geez, about 80 years now with Catholic worker houses of hospitality and Catholic worker farms um, just all across the whole country and it's international now. They're all just serving the poor, serving the homeless, serving the depressed and the downtrodden, folks who are in trouble, children, adults, elderly folks. And the whole time, they seek to declare the peace-filled gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dorothy had such a huge impact on my own discipleship, and so I invite you... If you are unfamiliar with her or her work, please check her out. Now, I don't know about you, but I've noticed that I struggle with time. That's one of the things that I figured out while I was on my uh, six-week sabbatical. You know, this the six weeks that I had set aside for rest, rejuvenation, writing, spirituality, family, all that good stuff. And I just felt it uh, uh, flying down the tracks like a runaway train. And I realized there is something inside of me that just has a terrible relationship with time. I never feel like I have enough of it, you know? I get frustrated that it moves forward for some reason, that I can't stop it, um, that that I feel like we're just always dealing with one moment after another, inexorably on and on. Like, I don't know if it sounds crazy or not, but sometimes I just want to stop 
time for a while. Do you know what I mean? I want to just pull a cord or hit a break and say, okay, let's just chill here for a while. No reason to move forward. What's the hurry? Have you ever felt anything like that before? I know sometimes people say that they're not ready for their kids to grow up. Or they're not ready to retire. Move out of their house. Not ready to lose a family member. Stuff like that. And even though I've never had kids, I, I get it. I really do. I guess sometimes I just wish that I could extend a moment in time and just make it stretch out for a while so I can just dwell in that moment and not worry about what might be coming down the pike. I want more time. I want slower time. <laughs> I guess I want time to heal like a dog when I tell it to. Well, anyway, I was uh, reading some stuff from uh, My Hero Dorothy Day today, since this is the anniversary of her death. And uh, I found this quote here that is really making me think. She said... If you are rushed for time, sow time, and you will reap time. Go to church and spend a quiet hour in prayer. You will have more time than ever, and your work will get done. Sow time with the poor. Sit and listen to them. Give them your time lavishly and you will reap time a hundredfold. It's interesting, isn't it? I never thought of time as something that you have to grow before, <laughs> that you have to plant, and then you have to cultivate, and then you have to harvest. I have no idea if that quote is correct or not. Like, I know that Dorothy Day wrote it. I just don't know if it's true. But I think it's worth giving a try. So for the next four weeks of Advent, I think I'm gonna... I'm gonna try to sow time. So that I can reap time so that I can feast on time. And I invite you, during this time, this incredibly hectic time we call the holidays, the holy days as it once was, I invite you to join me in that. So time for yourself, so time for prayer, so time with the poor. And come the new year, we'll find whether or not we have a harvest. Stick around. We have a word from the Lord for you today. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, the 21st chapter, verses 25 through 28. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. And on the earth, distress among the nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud 
with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. To go along with today's sermon, um, you need to take a look at a very special painting called The Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. I'll put a link to a good um, digital copy of it in the description of this podcast, but you can look it up for yourself. Um, it's going to be important. We're going to refer to it, and I would suggest... Um, going ahead and taking a look at it before you listen to the sermon today. I wish to preach to you today from the title, Turbulent Flow. Turbulent Flow. Please pray with me. And now, most holy and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So have you ever wondered what might just be the most beautiful work of art? I mean, for sure, the answer would have to be subjective right what you find beautiful someone else might take to be absolute garbage right likewise your neighbor might have some kind of personal experience that makes one painting beautiful to her that you might pass off as hotel lobby art but i bet if you sent out a survey to the entire human population, there would be a few works of art, a few famous paintings or statues that would rise above all the rest, don't you think? Maybe something like the Mona Lisa, or Michelangelo's David, perhaps. My personal favorite being uh, Tim Burton's Batman. But undoubtedly, if you asked everyone out there what is the greatest work of all time, some significant percentage of those people would very well say Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night. And when you look at it, it's clear as to why, isn't it? I mean... The contrast of blues and yellows in swirling skies, gentle eddies of light seeming to, to pool on the canvas, the peaceful town below, the, the mighty cypress tree seemingly connecting heaven to earth. I remember the first time I saw it at the Museum of Modern Art. I saw the actual painting. First of all, it's smaller than you probably are anticipating. But second of all, I I had this moment where I was like, man, I feel like I should pray or something. Like I feel like I'm standing in front of an altar or a holy icon in an Orthodox church. The Starry Night has captured the imaginations of art lovers and evoked the admiration of common folks since it was created in the year 1889. But actually, I think if you really want to understand the Starry Night, it doesn't help to know a lot about painting and, and technique and color and stuff like that. If you really want to know about the Starry Night, then you have to know something called 
turbulence. If you've ever flown in an airplane, then you certainly know what turbulence is. The pilot comes on the radio all calm and self-assured. Oh, I just want to let you folks know we've got some bumpy air coming up. I'm going to go ahead and turn the seatbelt light on. Meanwhile, the plane starts shaking so violently. You're, you're pretty sure you just lost a wing somewhere, and you're contemplating turning your cell phone on to call your loved ones. That bumpiness in the sky is created by something called turbulent flow. And turbulent flow is the chaos that's created when two or more fluids, either liquid or gas, get, get all mixed up with one another. So in an airplane up in the sky, you have all these pockets of air, right? And in jet streams with different temperatures and in densities, all of them flowing at different speeds and when you try to fly through all of that invisible chaos, that's when you get those bumps that make you think you're going to die. Another example of turbulence can be found in something as simple and pedestrian as your morning cup of coffee. Have you ever looked down right as you poured a little cream into your cup? and saw those, those swirling plumes come up from the bottom, that is turbulent flow. Whitewater rapids, that's turbulence. Even weather is turbulence. Air is fluid. So weather is essentially different globs of air flowing through and around one another. That's one of the reasons why beyond three days, the weather becomes really, really hard to predict. If, if you're going to that app on your phone and looking seven, ten days out, odds are that prediction is going to change because all those storms and clouds and, and all that moisture and heat it moves around according to the principles of turbulent flow, which is one of the most complicated things in the entire world. Physicists and mathematicians don't even have a foolproof way of predicting and charting turbulent flow. That's why, uh, if you pay attention to the news, they never really know exactly where the eye of a hurricane is going to make landfall. Like, there's that, that cone of possibility, right? Um, they can never say quite for sure, because it's just too complex. One scientist I saw said that you would have to be able to correctly... Um, if you were going to be able to correctly model and predict a pattern of turbulence, you would have to know the exact speed and position and temperature of every atom in both substances to be able to say for certain how they will react with one another. Even... With all of our technology and education, there is still not enough computing power in the whole world to accurately predict the shape of that little plume of milk that rises to the top of your cup of coffee. In 2004, there were a group of scientists who were looking at uh, turbulent flow in outer space. They were looking at pictures taken from the Hubble Space Telescope of a, a nebula 
which is a, a cloud of different gases that are swirling around one another, working their way toward becoming a full-fledged star. This is what they were studying, the, the turbulent flow of the gases in a vacuum environment-like space. And then one scientist just happened to make an offhanded comment that the nebula which is way far out in deep space, by the way. This is the first time it's ever been looked at with human eyes. The scientist said that the nebula he was looking at actually reminded him of Van Gogh's Starry Night. The other scientists, his colleagues, just sort of shrugged it off and, and kept doing whatever they were doing until that first scientist pulled up a picture of the painting on his laptop, turned it around toward them and said, no guys, this looks a lot like the Starry Night. And so they pulled out their protractors and their calculators and they looked at the screen and they found out that the Starry Night is actually a pretty good rendering of a turbulent flow pattern. Actually, it was a pretty great rendering of a turbulent flow pattern. Actually, the pattern of turbulence in Van Gogh's Starry Night challenges what the, the scientists themselves were able to reconstruct using their computers. It's very possible that, that Vincent Van Gogh was able to reconstruct um, turbulent flow better than anyone else had ever done in history. And he did it by eye. He didn't have a telescopic uh, lens for still photography. He, he didn't know their mathematical formulas. He had no other examples in print or paint of these kinds of turbulent forces. So how did he do it? Well, one of those physicists a man named Ho Jose Luis Aragon took it upon himself to study the turbulence in Starry Night full time for two years. And at the end of all that study, the grand conclusion of him and his students was as follows, quote, We think that Van Gogh had a unique ability to depict turbulence through periods of prolonged psychotic agitation. You see, back in June of 1889, Vincent Van Gogh wasn't painting in his studio or from his home, or out on a nature trail. No, Vincent Van Gogh painted the starry night from his cell on the top floor of the St. Paul Asylum for the Insane and the Feeble-Minded. In the months prior, Van Gogh had a very serious falling out with his friend, colleague, and fellow artist, Paul Gauguin. And that led Vincent to suffer a complete psychotic breakdown with hallucinations, hearing voices, and then finally culminating in him famously cutting off his own left ear. In June of 1889, Vincent Van Gogh went mad. 
and he found in the midst of his madness the beauty of turbulence and chaos. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. And on the earth, distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens themselves will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. One thing that most Christians don't really understand about Advent and its history within Christianity is that it isn't just about waiting for the little baby Jesus to show up in the manger at Christmas, right? Advent isn't just about it being quote-unquote Christmas time. Advent is about anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And for Judean peasants in the first century... You have to understand that waiting for the Messiah was something akin to waiting for the apocalypse, right? It was about waiting for a chosen one who was destined to destroy the forces of power and oppression in the world who it was said would dissolve the sky like melting gold and, and, and strike terror into the hearts of, of, of kings and everyone who ruled and held power in the old world. The, the vision of the Messiah is an incredibly scary and destructive vision in the way it was first imagined. That the coming of the Messiah would be primarily about the demolition of a world and the reinvention and rebirth of that world. There's a chaos to it. There's a, a bedlam, a frightful madness to the coming of the Messiah. But swirling in and around and among all that madness and fear seems to be beauty and grace and hope. Part of the story of Advent is the message that that which seems turbulent, that which seems chaotic, beyond all measure and proportion and computing power in the whole wide world can still be beautiful. And the chaos and the irony of ironies dreamed up by God since the creation of the world, the chaos is what allows the beauty to be seen and felt in the first place. Now, there's something really interesting about the Starry Night. And you kind of have to look at the picture itself. This is a podcast, so I can't really show it to you like I did to folks in church on Sunday. But the, the tradition of quote-unquote orthodox interpretation of the Starry Night has begun to shift in recent years. For most of its history, the painting has been interpreted as a more or less abstract interpretation of a simple yet beautiful night sky overlooking a sleepy village in the mountains. Even though the image displays signs of turbulence all over the sky, most people have looked at the painting and seen an overall theme of peace and tranquility. 
And then an art student came along and wrote her PhD specifically on the mountains and the hills of the Starry Night. And she pointed out that over on the left-hand side, the left lower part of the painting, to the left of the great cypress tree in the forefront, the mountains are a bit blue, but the dominant color over there is a kind of green, right? There are lots of dots and, and, and sort of um, brush strokes of green in amongst the blue, as you would expect to see on a European mountainside, right? And there's even a big uh, bit of it over to the, the right of the cypress tree as well. But if you look at the mountains over on the right side of the painting, you'll see them de depicted as nothing but a blue cascade with then swirls of blue and white under. And since then, other artists and interpreters and scholars have made the point that these blue shapes, these, these waves and cascades are very consistent with the ways that other Impressionist and post-Impressionist artists have depicted waterfalls. The question that now occupies those who study Vincent van Gogh is whether or not the Starry Night, rather than depicting the beauty of a tranquil evening, is actually depicting a glorious night sky that sits above an apocalyptic flood. A watery deluge washing over the mountains about to engulf the sleepy town below. Friends, apocalypses happen every day. That's been one of my mantras that uh, has brought me a sense of comfort since the pandemic started and our society has been going through all of this division. Apocalypses happen. They, they happen to real people and they happen each and every single day. Whether it's a, a death, an illness, a diagnosis, the loss of a job, an unexpected bill, a failing grade, the loss of a relationship... There is always someone around us who feels like the nice, sleepy village of their lives is about to be overwhelmed by the waves, and their world is about to be washed away. And everything feels like nothing but tumult and chaos. Yet I take great hope in the idea that a man like Vincent van Gogh, a man who bore the wounds of his own personal apocalypse in his ear and in his mind, shows us that despite the chaos and turbulence below, the beauty still persists. The glory lives on the unimaginable incalculable swirl of grace and light is always working its way through our lives, even at our darkest moments, if only we have the eyes to see it. I read an interview with a soldier who landed at Normandy Beach on D-Day. And the interviewer asked him to describe the scene when he stepped out of the boat and into the water. And, and you know, he, he said it was hell on earth. Quote, words can, cannot, cannot convey the terror and the disgust I felt the entire time. It was the ugliest thing 
any of us had ever seen. But, sometime after the fighting started to die down, he just happened upon a wildflower that was growing up out of the ground next to a Nazi pillbox. A pillbox is a, a gun hole, basically. And the whole area had been bombarded with mortars for days and, and, and um, fire and, and bombs and all this stuff. Yet that little pink flower somehow managed to survive. He said, I picked it up. And then I noticed the most beautiful and colorful sunset I have ever seen. And I thought, wow, the beauty still comes back. My favorite theologian, David Bentley Hart, calls this the tyranny of God's beauty. That no matter how much ugliness we bring into the world, no matter how much death or rejection, how much pain or sorrow or division we ourselves cause or experience, no matter what gets flooded and, and destroyed by the swirling tumult of sin and evil that surrounds us, God still forces beauty and grace onto the world with a holy and even despotic authority. Even into the mind of an epileptic manic depressive like Van Gogh, even into the lives of, of two homeless peasants giving birth in a manger next to animals and all their dirty byproducts. Even into the turbulence of your life and mine. And thanks be to God, we have a name for this tyranny of beauty. We call it Advent. These words I offer to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, there you have it, folks. The first installment of our Advent and Artistry preaching series. I want to take a moment and invite you, if you have not already, um, to take advantage of our online giving option for the United Methodist Church of Uniontown. If, um, if these messages mean something to you, if they are making a positive impact in your life, wherever you are listening to them, however you are listening them, to them, please consider making a donation to our congregation like most churches right now. We have been um, struggling since the pandemic, and we can use all the support um, you can afford to give us through this holiday season. So thank you. And now, um, whether you give or not, whether you can afford to do it or not, I still want to offer you the same blessing I always do. May the love of God the Father, the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you and make the beauty of God's peace apparent to you even in the midst of turbulence. Amen. Well, grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Exile Cast 
for Tuesday, the 21st of December, the winter solstice in the year of our Lord, 2021. Well, grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is ExileCast. For Tuesday, the 21st of December, the winter solstice, in the year of our Lord, 2021. Well, grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is ExileCast. For Tuesday, the 21st of December, the winter solstice, in the year of our Lord, 2021. Well, grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is ExileCast. For Tuesday, the 21st of December, the winter solstice, in the year of our Lord, 2021. Well, grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis. And this is ExileCast. For Tuesday, the 21st of December, the winter solstice, in the year of our Lord, 2021. Well, grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis. And this is ExileCast. For Tuesday, the 21st of December, the winter solstice, in the year of our Lord, 2021. In short, the Essenes were a doomsday cult, biding their time as they watched for the coming of the one who would call down the flames that would set fire to the entire world. And somehow, a dirty, ragged, well, not that dirty, he took two baths a day, a ragged, <laughs> locust-eating Essene named John saw the fulfillment of these dark and destructive prophecies in a man who we would come to call the great physician, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace. But how? I mean, that doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, this is hell that John is talking about here, right? He's talking about sending people to hell. We hail Jesus as Savior and Messiah, the Word of God incarnate, Yet John makes him sound like Jesus, the destroyer of worlds. How can the same one who said, blessed are the merciful, and told us to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors, also be the one whose winnowing fork is in his hand, who will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire? How can a man who is one with a God of love send people off to burn for all eternity. And why do we have to hear about it at Christmas time? And how can that be good news? Here's the number one thing that I want you to take with you when you leave here today, okay? The unquenchable fire. John speaks of here. The unquenchable fire is not a hell of eternal torment. In fact, it is such an important detail for you to take home. Please repeat it after me. The unquenchable fire, the unquenchable fire is, not hell. is not hell. The unquenchable fire is not hell. You see, unquenchable 
does not mean the same thing as everlasting, all right? For instance, um, nothing we can think of can possibly quench the sun, but the scientists tell us all the time that the sun isn't going to burn forever, right? In the same way, these flames, whatever they are, Maybe they can't be stopped while they're burning, but that doesn't mean that they'll burn eternally. There's nothing about this individual passage that should make us think that John the Baptist is talking about sending people to a hell that will last forever and ever. Secondly, what you have to remember is that the wheat and the chaff are all part of the same plant. The chaff is the husk that covers the edible grain. It's the hard outer hull that has no nutritional value. The, the sharp, bark-like part of, of the wheat plant, and, and in certain varieties of, of wheat, if you eat that part, it can actually cut you up on the inside. That's the part that needs to be removed and burned. He's talking about you as an individual. How you have these different pieces, parts of yourself, some that are good and, and need to be exposed and saved and held for safekeeping, and others that need to be peeled off, thrown away, and burned. Let me put it this way. John came from a group of monks that took these ritual baths because they believed that every day and every night they would be soiled by the filth of the world. No one at this time bathed twice a day, even the Romans. Um, but John's people thought that's what they needed to be clean. That they couldn't get it off. That the dirt and the grime and the sin would just keep getting stuck to them. And so John is saying, yeah, but, but look, there's this guy who's coming who won't just baptize you with water, who won't just wash the surface so it won't get dirty again. No, the guy who's coming will tear off the hard shell that covers you. He will remove the tough carapace with which you have covered yourself and throw that away into the fire. And then only the tender, inner, nutritious kernel will be left behind. Because that's the inner part. That's the good part. That's the part that gives life to the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I can have a pretty tough shell sometimes. You know, we talk about how good it is to have a thick skin. Did you ever hear that? Like, oh, don't worry about him. He's got a thick skin. How we all need to, to toughen up from time to time. And you know what? That is true to a point. That hard shell can help to protect us in the midst of a, a crazy world. It can shield us from the pain and the insults of others. But here's the thing. That hard shell doesn't nourish anyone. It doesn't get digested it doesn't give anyone any energy. And in fact, at the end of the day, it just gets thrown out with the waste. I truly believe that Christ is coming not in order to judge or condemn or, or burn anyone, but Christ is coming for you and for me, for all of us, to free us of the hard stuff. To peel away the, the sharp stuff, the dead stuff that gets caught in your teeth for days and days. And he's coming to release 
that part of us that can feed the world. And let me tell you, that's not always easy, my friends. Depending on the grain, sometimes all you have to do is throw it up in the air, and the wind will actually blow the chaff away while the seed just drops right to the ground. Or sometimes you you may have to soak it a little bit in water, like John the Baptist, and, and, and the chaff will just sort of come right off. I think that's what the Essenes were trying to do. Other times, for the real tough stuff, you might have to tap it with a hammer. And still, there are other grains, especially in the ancient world before we had all this genetic engineering. There were grains that had to be separated one by one as the farmer delicately peeled away the husk with his fingers, and held the seeds gently in his hand. The point is, and I truly believe this, as radical as it may seem, there are no bad seeds. There are only thicker and thinner layers of husk that cover something that is good, pure, and full of nutrition. Sometimes getting that husk off is a breeze, and sometimes it takes a hammer or even a bit of fire, but the heart of the Christian gospel, the good news, that it's at the center of everything that we do is that eventually we will all become the pure grain and we will all get baked into the single, same glorious loaf. And friends, that is good news. That's gospel, even when it comes from the mouth of a barbarian. These words I offer to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Exile Cast for Tuesday, the 21st of December, the winter solstice in the year of our Lord, 2021. Well, grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Exile Cast for Tuesday, the 21st of December, the winter solstice in the year of our Lord, 2021.